This is Strange Assembly, episode 146, Gen Con 2014 in review, part two. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me, as always, are Jay Earl. Hey. And Mike Cook. Yo. And this is your tabletop gaming podcast. As you can tell from the title, this is our second episode looking at uh, what we did at Gen Con 2014. If this is the first one you're hearing, the other one, uh, you may have missed it in the feed because it was only probably only a few days ago that it came out. So you can go check part one. As in part one, we're going to be talking uh, broadly about what we did at Gen Con, and we're not going to be getting in really in-depth into things like Doomtown strategy or storyline details for Legend of the Five Rings. Those will be followed in, in podcasts that come after this one. In part one, we got through uh, what we did on Wednesday, Day Zero Trade Day, and what we got through on Thursday, the games we played, what we saw in the dealer hall, what we had some fun with. So we're going to kick off this episode talking about Friday. Why don't you lead it off with Friday, Jay? My Friday was mainly spent in the Doomtown tournament, the first Doomtown tournament, where I trying to remember now, I think I was like fifth into the cut and they did a top eight. But so I was playing a deck that was very fast, very aggressive. I had games finish up before they'd even finished handing out the match slips fast. And in my finals, just got a bad draw and went out quickly. And so then after that, went and did some D&D. I was gonna say you didn't go out that bad. I mean, you you went one and two. Yeah, uh, you, you you split games. Those games, neither of them were oh, like right. blowouts. That's right. That was that was the best of three one. And yeah, those were all three of those were like super close games that came down to one hand, just failing me a little bit. And for D and D, that was what you and Mike and I at at eight o'clock. I think yeah. we went and took a turn in one of the Defiance of Flan. I think these are things that are going to be D&D adventure series things that you'll see in in stores. What it used to be D&D Expeditions, now it's D&D Adventure League. So these were things where you went in with a, a table of up to six people and did a little mini adventure for an hour. D&D 5th Edition. So the glorious... Merrick Toscobble wrote again. That's not true. He's not glorious at all. He's He does not like to get shot. But this was Jay and I's second time around with the 5th edition of Gen Con after our experience on trade day. I think this was your first time through an adventure in 5th in edition, Mike, right? No. Oh, no? Okay, never mind. Well, it depends on what you qualify... This was my first time in a 5th edition after release, but I did 5th oh, okay, edition. Yeah. When, I mean, I, I've been keeping up with the playtest, and I did the 5th edition stuff, I think, last year at Gen Con, and I loved it. So. And you did that too, right, at Gen Con last year, Jay? You I also did, yes. played 5th edition? I think we all liked it. 
we'll probably hear more from uh, Mike about that when we get to his Saturday because I, I mean, one of the downsides of these sorts of things is that right, it's only an hour, and there were the three of us at the table that we, you know, that we knew each other, but it's not like these characters had interacted before, and you're at a table with other people, and so you can get a sense of the system, but you can't get real depth in it and you can't do a lot of character thing it's your role playing is is often kind of limited to having some sort of tick or or verbal distinction about your character nobody's going to be able to get any kind of nuance in in that kind of time frame but still i think we all enjoyed it generally yes i feel like that's definitely one of those things that you want to go in with as full a party as you can it didn't even feel like there was all that much time for role-playing, because an hour is just so short Yes. for how much you're trying to do. No doubt it, it is short. I think that was our, our one night where we actually got a sensible amount of sleep, because we finished that up at 9, and then we kind of went like, sleep, sleep, yes, let's <laughs> let's actually head out of the sensible time. But before we uh, we did that, of course, you had stuff that you did on Friday before 8 o'clock, Mike. Yeah, at, well, at 9.50 a.m., I went and registered for the Netrunner tournament, which apparently started at noon. So I had a couple hours that I just kind of wandered around the dealer's hall a little bit, talked to some friends that I managed to see there, kind of looked over games as they were being demonstrated. So then I went back to the Netrunner tournament. They had two different Netrunner tournaments this year as far as, like, general admission. So you had one which was, it was all pre-sold tickets, and you had another one that was, you just had to come with generics and register, and they gave preference to people who had not played in the one on Thursday. So I didn't get the ticket in time on Thursday, so I was like, okay, well, whatever, I'll I'll go do Friday. Plus, the one on Thursday started, I think, at like 10 a.m., and I, like, I really want to be in the hall to get picked stuff up on Thursday. I believe it actually sold out before I even tried to pick up a ticket for it, because a lot of the stuff in Gen Con went really fast this year. There's just, I mean, it set another record for attendance, so it's not unsurprising. And they run, like, either 125 or 128 player tournaments, and there were 121 players in that second round, and the first one was completely sold out. So that runner is obviously doing very well. But anyway, so I went and I played... The promo for playing was the alternate art noise, which is really awesome. They actually had a thing that if you played all seven rounds, you got another alternate noise at alternate art noise at the end. But I ended up playing three rounds, and then I, I really enjoy Netrunner, but I have not had a chance to play Netrunner in a few months. Uh, I don't know if it's months, but it's, it had been at least six weeks, six weeks to a couple months. I haven't really played Netrunner. My decks had not been updated at all for the newest pack, and I was just feeling a little bit tired from the day before. I kind of ran myself down, and I could feel my brain power kind of sapping. So after, like, the third round, I went 3-3 three and three overall, and then I uh, I just dropped because I was like, eh. Well, also because my third round opponent was also dropping, which meant my strength of schedule was going to be terrible, which is fine. It's not like I expected to go anywhere anyways, so... Then after I did that, I actually went over and found Jay in the Doomtown area. I was kind of interested in playing Doomtown, but I was not familiar enough with the game to 
put myself into a tournament, even if it's a you know a new player. Everybody's kind of at the stage type of tournament, and I'm kind of glad because just getting to sit and watch Jay because I think I came over while Jay was in the top 16, like he was sitting down for his top 16 match. I watched that. I really learned a lot, both from how Jay's deck played and how his opponent played. I really wish I had caught that guy's name because he was really good. And he was also the guy, by the way, who won that tournament. So the fact that Jay came so close and then that was the guy who actually ended up winning the whole thing, I think actually speaks pretty well for how well Jay did overall. And his opponent was playing Law Dogs, and that was one of the factions that I was interested in. So obviously, like, I watched his stuff and I really learned a lot about how Netrunner, not Netrunner, <laughs> I learned a lot about how Doomtown really works and functions and how you interact with each other. And I, not only did I watch that, I actually watched the the final of the finals between that guy and another guy who I think was also a Sloan player. And that was really interesting to watch because, like, the Logdog player had the Sloan player just absolutely terrified of cheating. I'm not going to get too deep into that. I just, you know, it's neat little things that you see. And seeing the structure of his deck helped me give an idea of, like, okay, this is kind of how you want to do this type of deck. Or, you know, it's one way um, that you could do that type of deck. And then after that, I think that was when we went over to Dungeons and Dragons. That was mostly my Friday. Okay, yeah. Now, Friday, for me, was my big dealer's hall day. I was at the dealer's hall when it opened, and I think at 10 in the morning, and I believe I left the dealer's hall at 5.45, which really one should leave and eat at some point in there. But no, that's for um, saner people than I. So I took that time. I went from one end of the dealer's hall. I went to the other end of the dealer's hall. I looked down every aisle. I looked at every booth that caught my interest. And I am not going to talk about every single thing that I saw here. But I I would like to talk about games I sat down and did demos for or games that I had a particular interest in, even if I I didn't get to to demo them. So, for example, I uh, particularly... Uh, wanted to take a look at XCOM and the new Star Wars Armada. Those had been announced by Fantasy Flight basically within the week before Gen Con began. And one of the things that it can be easy to forget about Gen Con, except when you're right there in the dealer's hall, is that it can be a real pain to actually get a demo in the dealer's hall of a particular game that you want to do, because you show up there and there's a whole mess of people and you can get it if you're willing to stand there and wait and see however long it is. And I'm usually not willing to do that because I just have, I just have better things to do. There's so many things to see, but I did for these watch through other demos. Okay. I'm at least going to watch one, one demo of this game to get an idea of it. XCOM looks great. This is the one with the app. Like the Shadowrun Crossfire that we talked about last episode, you want to have four players for this. I think it adjusts better than Shadowrun did, but ideally you do have four, because there are four specific roles in the game. And if you're entirely unfamiliar with XCOM, first, I'm sorry, go out and play XCOM. But it's a... The original was the Was the original one XCOM UFO Defense? Was that the subtitle? Or was it just XCOM... Uh, I think it was a UFO defense, yeah. So it, you you are a multinational organization that is tasked with defending the Earth from these aliens, and so 
you have to manage researching new technology to fight the aliens and sending your marines on missions and defending your base from attacks and sending out your interceptors to deal with UFOs that are going after different parts of the world so you can maintain political support around the the country. In this game, you've got one guy whose job is he deploys the satellites and he manages the app, and then he's got some other cards. You've got one guy who's in charge of research. You've got one person who's in charge of the Marines. You've got one girl who is in charge of the commander. They're running the budget, and they're deploying the interceptors. And you have the app, and the app puts you on a timer. And there will be this little... If I think they had it on easy, so they had 30 seconds. It'll be, scientist, you have 30 seconds to decide how you're going to deal with this research thing that's come up. And then it'll pop over to the commander, choose a crisis card, and the commander's got to look at the top two cards of the crisis deck and choose which one is going to be less bad. And that's something that the team is going to have to face and put it on the bottom. And so it goes around and it does all of these steps, you know, there will be several research things that come up, several possibilities for the deployment of interceptors or dealing with the crisis cards or what you're doing with satellites. And then at the end of that, then you go through and you resolve how your responses manage to deal with all of these these things. And the real-time aspect of it means that there just is not the possibility in any significant way of one player directing everybody. When there's only a limited time like that, one player just can't make all the decisions. There's no way to do the communication necessary for that. It really, I felt, also captured part of the feel of the game, which is that you're kind of stretched a little bit. And if you're actually playing the video game, sometimes you have to make strategic decisions because you can't deal with everything. You can't stop every invading UFO. You can't. You don't have the money to research everything that you want to research. The commander's in charge of the budget. You have to choose between sometimes between paying for research or paying for more interceptors or paying to train new marines because you've gotten the old ones killed. Uh, or you just need to be able to deploy more more teams than you, you currently can. It increases the difficulty by you can have different kinds of enemies that show up, different kinds of missions that are harder. At the higher level difficulties, the app will just go faster. And you do have to have the app to play the game. It's going to be on iOS and Android, and it'll be a web-based thing if you know you don't have anything else. And that'll be that part of it'll be free, but you do have to have it. And if you go down to a smaller number of players, if you go down to three players, you have to pick one player to do both roles, and you'll tell the app which roles they're doing, and it'll adjust the time that they get a little bit because they have to switch back and forth, so they get a little bit more time. I feel like you'd want to avoid playing at three-player because it would be loaded too much on one player. It feels like four-player is the ideal, and then you could go down to two-player where each of you is doing two roles. And it probably would even work solo, where it's just you frantically going back and forth trying to to manage everything as you don't know what order the decisions are going to come up in. But I, I think ideally four-player. I also got the chance to look at Armada. Fantasy Flight has been massively successful with the Star Wars X-Wing miniature game. It's actually, I think, recently been the second 
best-selling miniatures game, period, in the United States after Warhammer 40K. It's got fantastic figures, and it is a two-player Star Wars-themed space-fighting game. But that focuses on the individual starfighter level. The Millennium Falcon is a large ship in that. And when you have something like a Carillion Corvette, if you actually had it to scale, it would be incredibly mammoth so that it's not even functional and it's giant when they build it into that game, but that's because they've kind of broken the scaling by a substantial margin. Well, Armada moves the scale up, so now your standard level of ship is a capital ship, and a Carillion Corvette is some little bitty thing that's two inches long. Well, not bitty, but you know, compared to what it is in, in X-Wing. You have Starfighters, but it's going to be one fig with an array of little, t- little teeny tiny starfighters on it because it represents a whole squadron. And the movement, it's not about dogfighting, it's about these more lumbering capital ships where you have to deal with momentum. The box is going to come with a Victory-class Star Destroyer, a Nebulon B frigate, an Acrylian Corvette, and then some squadrons of X-Wings and TIE Fighters. The capital ship models still look fantastic. The squadron models are not painted they they don't look that good and it's really unfair because probably if it was in a vacuum you'd say oh those look pretty good but they're next to the absolutely gorgeous other painted models that are in the box so that's kind of unfortunate i don't know if fantasy flight's going to end up selling some really expensive add-on thing but but e- even with that, they're putting so much in the box that that's going to come down at a much higher price point for the single base game than than X-Wing is. Everybody who was demoing that seemed to enjoy it. Although it's still maintaining the central, we're a two-player Star Wars-based space game, it seemed to play very differently in a lot of ways than they did. Just distinctive interactions for starfighters versus capital ships like a capital ship can just plow right into a squadron of starfighters and nothing gets damaged right because it's really just one ship and the starfighters can move out of the way so you just kind of move the starfighter somewhere and then when the capital ship takes shots at the starfighters you just get to take a shot at every single enemy squadron within your firing arc they deal with range by having three different colors of dice and your ship has some certain array of device of, of different these colors depending on how it works and at long range you only get to use one of the colors of dice and at medium range you get to use two of the colors of dice and at short range you just get to use all of them and so if something's got a small number of long range weapons it'll have a smaller number of dice but it'll always get to use them. if somebody's something's got a lot of point defense weapons it'll have lots of dice but they'll only work at short range that that sort of thing so that looked that looked pretty cool I think that will be pretty successful, like X-Wing has been. Let's see. I went and I wanted to, to check out Epic Resort. I was able to get a rules explanation of this. I was not able to get a full demo, which probably ended up being not that important because they ended up selling them out anyway before I would have been able to get a full demo. So I'll have to try to, to catch that again later. But uh, Epic Resort is a, they call it a deck evolution game. It's got a deck-building element to it, but you are always replacing one card with another, so your deck isn't getting any bigger. The conceit is that each player has an island resort, and your big clientele that you're trying to attract are heroes. 
priests and fighters and they've been injured going off doing heroic things and you want them to come to your islands and recuperate, which is good because every once in a while um, monsters attack the resorts. And so you have to, to manage getting, if you get lots of tourists to a particular attraction, then you can make a lot of money, but then you don't earn a lot of of flair because you're not this exclusive destination. And so you need money to do things like hire workers and build attractions, but you need the flair to be able to attract the heroes. And you can get victory points by buying super fancy attractions or get victory points by keeping these heroes recuperating at your resort long enough that they're actually fully healed, can go back out in the world and talk about how awesome you your resort was. It was pretty cool. I would like to get back to be able to play that sometime, but I was not able to do that at Gen Con. Not everything that's awesome at Gen Con is a game. I have to say, because we, right, we don't do video, so our faces are not really out there as recognizable, and frankly, sometimes it amazes me that we really do have listeners. I know that we have listeners and readers because I can see that people click on things and I can see that people download things. But this year for Gen Con, we actually had a larger number of Strange Assembly shirts. So it wasn't just like, I have my one Strange Assembly shirt, so I wear it on Saturday. I actually had a bunch of them, so I, I got to wear a different one every day. Uh, so one of the, the times when I was walking through the dealer's hall along the edge of the art district... Elena Lemmer, who is a an artist who does game work, including Legend of the Five Rings cards, turns out is also a listener to the podcast and was like, oh, hey, Strange Assembly, I listen to you. So that was fun for me. It was also nice that I, I was able to get her to uh, sign some, some of the cards that were in my Legend of the Five Rings deck. I also got to, to chat with Sam Flegel again, who we had on the podcast recently and who was at the Atlanta Cote last year selling arts. And he also does Legend of the Five Rings and some other stuff. So, but Elena was really nice and that was really cool to have randomly have somebody recognize your, your product uh, at somewhere as big as Gen Con. So, I played the dark gothic deck building game from Flying Frog Productions. This actually is just a, a flat out deck building game. It's set in the same world as their Touch of Evil game, which I've never played. So I don't really know anything about uh, how that games work beyond what I asked about the guy who was giving me the, the demo for dark gothic. And I probably had not looked at Touch of Evil because I think I thought it was really more of a zombie thing, which is actually a different... That might be Last Night on Earth as one of their games. It's more of a zombie thing. So I sat down to do Dark Gothic. It's set in the same place as Touch of Evil, which it's set around the turn of the 19th century, so 1800s. And Shadowbrook is like Sunnydale. And there's all sorts of crazy monster things that are always going on, and your characters are the heroes trying to stop them. So the the guy doing the demo is basically the the winner of the game is the one who, if you defeat the most monsters, you're Buffy, the loser is Xander. Everybody's still a hero, but there's uh, different degrees there. I enjoyed that. I liked the art. I liked the setting. 
It actually makes me want to go and check out the Touch of Evil game. I know that that's a completely different game, so the fact that I like the theme and the setting may not uh, end up signifying much. But mechanic-wise, it's like most deck buildings now, it's one that has a row of cards that then you buy as they come out, and then it refills randomly, and everybody's buying from just the random row. It's got three different kinds of currency, you know, combat and spirit and cunning. When when you're getting cards out of the row that may represent defeating some sort of opponent or it may represent recruiting an ally, over the course of the game you have to defeat three villains, big bad types, which are worth a lot of victory points, but, and I like this, they're only victory points. So you do get a nice chunk of victory points when you have an awesome hand and you get to take out the boss, but it doesn't then give you an uber card like you might get in, in some other deck building games that then kind of sometimes lets you start running away with the game because then every time you draw that uber card, it lets you have a big turn. There was also an interesting mechanic that was called Dark Secrets. Like sometimes you'd recruit an ally and the ally was a strong ally for what they cost and so you would get a dark secret that would go in your discard pile, or sometimes the bad guys would hand out a dark secret, and if you ever have one of these dark secret cards in your hand, you have to immediately stop and take a random card out of the shocking discovery deck, and it'll be like, it's a werewolf, or or something like that, and then you have to, to deal with it, which may be innocuous, or may be devastating, and so... Whether or not you're willing to take something with a dark secret may depend on whether or not you think you're going to be able to trash that card out of your discard pile before your deck reshuffles. I like that. The guy, Gary, I think was the guy named doing the the demo. I actually told the people at Flying Frog at the, the time, but he, he was fantastic. I have to say, for the most part, the people who are volunteering at booths at Gen Con are really enthusiastic about what they're doing, and they're generally informed about what they're doing, and... They generally like to see you and are having a pleasant experience. But he really went above and beyond, and it it really made the game come alive and, and made it much easier for me to go out and say, like, you know what, I, I just want to buy this, even though I had no intention. I didn't even know that this game had come out. It came out earlier this year. I didn't even know it had come out, but, you know, it looked interesting when I walked past it, and I got a great demo and ended up buying it, so... I guess it's true in gaming as it is in everywhere else. Enthusiasm and knowledge and being pleasant actually matters. So, hooray for that. I also got the demo Samurai Spirit. Now, this was on your list of things you were most looking forward to, Mike. Did you actually get around to looking at Samurai Spirit? No, it was kind of in the middle of all of the other stuff from that... Not the developer, that publisher. Funforge? Yeah. So I kind of saw it from a distance, but it was always extremely busy. So I was like, uh, nah, going to push over there. One of the times I walked past the Funforge booth, or maybe the time I walked past the Funforge booth, there was a table that was just about to start a demo of Samurai Spirit. And so, especially because I knew that you had been looking forward to that, I did... Sit. Uh, I did. Well, I'd say sit down to do that, but you were actually standing up for the demo. In Samurai Spirit, you are a group 
it's a fully cooperative game. You are a group of players who, well, I guess, I guess it's semi-co-op. I mean, you can like d- decide who kicked the most butt at the end of the game, but you are a group of samurai defending a village, like a seven samurai style. Except if you get wounded, you have the ability to like rage up into an animal form. Each turn, you are flipping up a card who's one of these bandits, and you have to decide whether or not to to fight them in one way or defend them in a different way, and you, you need to try to... There are some bandits you're going to need to put on the left side of your card, which means you're defending a farm or you're defending a family or you're preventing them from burning down barricades. You're not going to be able to do that with all of them. You can only do it once per kind. And the other benefit if you get of that is that if you put them over there, then they don't bother you anymore. Whereas if you put them over on the other side of the card, they wound you, and then they can do an ongoing effect. And so you have sometimes you have to figure out whether or not it's worth it. Like if you have a you know a one strength bandit show up early, do you put it over on the left side and guarantee that you've protected your the farm this turn, or do you put it over on the right because hey, it's only one wound, and maybe I'll draw a four guy later who attacks the farm. But everybody has a little power that is always on that can let them annoy, ignore stuff like I I had a guy who ignored the ongoing effects of even numbered bandits that he had fought against and everybody has a power that if they hit exactly one less than it would take to KO them for a round then it triggers it we, we went the whole round we played we played one out of three rounds without without anybody triggering their power and then at the end, you look at each player, and for everybody who failed to fill up their defend-a-family slot, a family dies. And for everybody who failed to fill up their defend-a-farm slot, a farm gets burned. And you win if at the end of three rounds there's at least one farm and one family left alive, I believe. That's a win. If everybody gets killed before then, then you lose. It was okay. I didn't get excited about that one, though. So that make you more or less interested in wanting to go still go check it out mike uh probably less aha one person influenced by my comments <laughs> don't get used to it yeah i, I would <laughs> so i also got to check out a demo of foretold rise of a god uh, this is a game that it was on kickstarter that i completely missed when it went through on Kickstarter, but then I saw it on the the BGG list of things that were going to be coming out at Gen Con, and it did have a full release at Gen Con. This also is a game that has deck-building aspects to it, but is, I would not say is a deck-building game. You are a... You're trying to become a god. I guess I'm not actually sure what you are. Maybe you're just a minor deity or a wannabe deity, but you have a temple... And you have followers, and your followers are your deck. And your temple is an array of tiles. And over the course of the game, you can add to your temple, and you can add to your your followers. And at the end of each of your turns, you will look at your temple, and you'll have a certain number of guard stations on the tiles in that temple. And and you get to choose that many cards out of your deck, and those are going to be people who are in your temple. And the other group of people are going to be in what's called your raiding party. The people who are in your temple will 
defend your temple if it's raided. And then on your next turn, they will act like a normal hand for a deck building game. They generate currency and they may have some sort of abilities. And you can use that currency to acquire new followers for your deck, to acquire new uh, tiles to expand your temple or to improve the tiles that you have. There's also a, a type of card called a relic. That's a different deck, and those are cards, but they don't go into your hand like followers. They go on the table. They can provide you with an ongoing benefit, and they can enable you to play yet another kind of card, which are called fate cards. Those are like events that you just play during the course of the game that work outside of the normal structure. And then your raiding party, once you're done with your normal turn, everybody who's in your raiding party goes and attacks another player's temple. So if it's a two-player game, you're just always attacking the same person. And that's dice-based combat. You try to get deep enough into the other guy's temple where the number of people they defend with at a time is dictated by the tiles that they have in their temple layout. And then you get to choose. Do you drop a lot of guys into an early fight because you need them to get past, but then you might not have enough left to win once you get into the inner sanctum but if you get all the way through and you win in the inner sanctum then you get to do some damage to the other player and so the primary way of winning is killing off the other players you can also win if you get the four relics of the same element into play under your control i enjoyed playing it but i only got to play a two player and it feels like although they made sure to test it for two players and it works well, for two players, that really the four-player count is its best spot, I'm guessing. And I just did not have the opportunity to do that. I hope that this gets out there enough that I'll have the opportunity to come back and, and do that because it wasn't just playing it with two players wasn't enough to make me want to just buy it on the spot. That's Foretold, Rise of a God. Uh, it's distributed by Legion Games slash Legion Supplies. I got to look at Chaosmos, which was another game that got kickstarted and does not come out until December. But I got to, to talk to the designers about that one. And this is a, a space game, I guess. It's, I mean, the theme is space. But you've got a, a board of these big hexes that are planets, and each character is a species, and the universe is ending. There's a clock on the game and you win the game if at the when this clock runs down you control this object of events power called the ovoid and the ovoid is a particular card this is a card based game it's a card based game with a closed environment cards are not added in there's no changing your deck by drawing new cards you just start the game with a certain array of cards and the way you get more cards you can attack another player and take cards from them and you can go to the planets and each of these planets has an envelope and so when you go to the planet, which you may need particular things to access, different species have better access to different planets, you get to go into the envelope and take all the cards that are in the envelope and then decide what you want to keep in your hand. And whatever you're not keeping in your hand, and there's a, you know, there's a hand limit of seven cards, you put back into the envelope. And so... You need to end the game with the Ovoid, but if you just walk around with the Ovoid, then somebody's just going to attack you and take it from you. 
So you probably want to stash it on a planet, but of course you have to make sure that you can get back to the planet and get it before the game ends and which of the planets that you visited that is on. And so there's a lot of bluffing and deduction and trying to figure out what the other players are up to. This is one that you, I think, definitely want to have at least three and probably want to have four. It supports more than that, but I'm guessing it, it runs into... Things might start to get a little messy then, trying to keep track of that many players. But I'm looking forward to the chance to sit down and play this one when it comes out later this year. Almost done. Moving into the home stretch of Friday. I, I told you my Friday was the the busy day. I got to play Evolution by North Star Games. In this game, you are trying to develop different species. And then you are putting trade cards on those species. You're trying to increase the population of the species because more population means that the species can gather more food. And at the end of each round, the food that your species have gathered represents how many victory points that you score. You can also sometimes have carnivores that instead of eating the general plant food that everybody else eats, will try to eat other species. Unfortunately, I got what I feel is a really skewed outlook of this game because I actually sat down with a guy who had just completed a demo and he wanted to play it again and it was clear that it was because he wanted to have a specific strategy and so basically on the second turn he built a big carnivore and because I didn't get any defensive cards right away he just ate all my guys and then the next round I didn't get any defensive cards and then I made a new species and he ate it I couldn't do anything. And there was probably something I could have done differently, but it was a demo, so what the heck do I know? But I'm playing against a guy who's really not treating it as a demo anymore. So that kind of warped my perception of the game. So don't be that guy when other people are trying to demo the game, please. So now I have to try to go play this game again so I can really get a better better perception of that or am i being unreasonable is is what he's doing perfectly fine and i'm just being a whiner no i mean if you're still trying to learn the game getting pasted is the last way to like it the last thing that i played in the dealer's hall on friday was the battle of kemble's cascade this is from z-man games and this as a game that is trying to simulate sort of a, an 80s-era arcade space shooter game like Asteroids or Galaga or, or, or something like that, or R-Type. And so it is a scrolling game. You've got a scrolling board, you've got these rows of cards, and at the end of every round, you swipe off one row of cards and you put another row of cards on top of that, and each player has their, their spaceship that they're flying around the board, and the movement is very old school video game like Asteroids where your ship can just kind of keep moving in one direction even though it's pointing another direction but the the pointing dictates how it shoots and your shots can just kind of go forever and drift down the the map and you can get points for getting all, all these little weird achievements you get resources for blowing up enemies which start out as little enemies and then by the time the scenario scrolls all the way to the end you have these big bosses that cover up one or two entire rows of the table. When we were doing the demo, 
I and everybody else at the demo thought that the game was fantastic. And then we got to the end of the demo, and the end of the game seemed really bad. And it seemed really bad because none of us wanted to shoot at the boss. We wanted to shoot at the other players because when another player blows up, everybody gets two points. So that's the penalty for dying is that other people get some points. Other than that, you just respawn, right? Next man, next life. But we had these really big, nasty weapons, and what we had been taught when we did the demo was that every point of damage you did to another player, you put a little PvP marker on them, and if they blew up, then you got an additional victory point for each of those PvP markers, which made it extremely lucrative to finish off other players at the end, because you do this massive damage. And so that was kind of lame, so I ended up going, well... I don't know about that. That end there seemed, kind of seemed to mess it up. But I did make sure to check when I got back here. And we had been given the rules incorrectly at the demo. No matter how much damage you do to another player in a turn, no matter how many times you hit them, you put one PvP marker on them for having hit them once. So unleashing your big gigantic weaponry on them is one extra victory point, not like four or five extra victory points, which which drastically would have changed how the end of that plays, which makes me much more enthusiastic about the game again. <laughs> that is one, if if we had played the demo right, I may have just bought the game, but because of the weird way that the game ended, I didn't want to, to pick it up right then. So, sorry Z-Man, we'll have to, to come back around on this one. Yeah, the- a bad demo is like the worst thing. Someone just accidentally misremembers a rule, and you come away with like, "Wow, that game's really not we really not good." And then you talk to somebody else, and you're like, "Oh, it's because that rule isn't that way." Yeah. And it was enough that I did right. I I did go and and check at least. It just seemed so incongruous. Everything had just gone fine with the game, and then it just produced this what seemed to be to all of us this really obviously perverse incentive about the game and. Like I said, other than that, the, the game was great. Everybody uh, really enjoyed it. They even had the designers there, and they came by and talked about it. Kemble's Cascade, by the way, is a is a constellation. Not a constellation, but it's a, a section of stars in the actual sky. I don't remember why they, they had picked that, but they, uh, they talked about that. Uh, the final game that I played, which I did as a ticketed demo, out in the, the card gaming hall after the dealer's hall, had closed up was Damage Report, and I think this may also have been a Kickstarter. It came out earlier this year, I think, but in a limited fashion, and this is another fully cooperative game, and it's another fully cooperative game that uses time as a way to stop the game from just turning into entirely a let's just sit down, either let's sit down and spend an hour figuring out our strategy for every move, or one player just telling everybody else what to do. And in Damage Report, you are the crew of a ship that has been attacked by some sort of alien. Your ship has been shot to pieces, the life support's damaged, the shields are damaged, the hyperdrive is offline, the lasers are offline, the teleporter is damaged, all sorts, you know, everything's a mess. What you're trying to do over the course of the game is repair your systems, and you win by either getting your hyperdrive fully repaired, which lets you escape, or by getting your lasers fixed enough to fire four times, which destroys the enemy ship. But every three minutes, the 
alien ship will fire at you again, and you have to pull out a damage report card, and it will tell you what sort of damage you do to the different sections of the the ship. The sort of most obviously important section of the ship is life support. And what life support does mechanically is define how often you get to take an action. And you have a sand timer, and the sand timer is 15 seconds. If you actually manage to get the life support to the point where it's fully repaired, you get to take an action every 15 seconds. You flip over the sand timer, take your action. Once it's run out, you flip it over and you can take another action. Most of the time, the life support's going to be somewhat damaged and you get to take an action every 30 seconds. You take your action, you flip it over onto this yellow circle, it finishes up, flip it back, and then once that second time has run out, then you get to take an action and then you, you know, you drop it back down to the 30 seconds. If it gets really damaged, it can give you even longer than that. And if, if you let the life support get destroyed, then, or, or, you know, damaged all the way down, then you only get to take an action every minute and you're probably doomed. But of course, you've got other things you have to deal with. You have to keep the shields fixed because if the shields fall below certain thresholds, then the damage effects are worse. You eventually have to repair the hyperdrive or else you'll never win or, or else the lasers. And your actions are moving back and forth across the ship, getting the parts and the energy and the crystals that, and the tools that you need to repair different sections of the ship. And I thought that that, that worked out really well. This was just a group of people. It included me, right? Like I've been playing games forever. It included a couple who it was their first time at Gen Con. And there were not any issues with anybody controlling anything. Everybody had a pretty straightforward time understanding the game. Everybody was having fun. I had to rush off and the demo guy had to jump in and take my spot because the demo started late, so I had to go off and do the, the D&D before we were able to finish. But, but I had I had fun with Damage Report. And then we already talked about D&D, and that was it for Friday. Which, mm, wow. So I, I apologize to the people who just listened to me talk for half an hour straight. Such as Jay, who has fallen asleep. Yep. Did you guys have anything else to add about your Friday Gen Con experience? Uh, no. Okay. Well, then. Except for that druid was a d- <laughs> We had a player at our D&D table who was not, you know, out of all the world, the person I would have chosen to sit at our table with us. That will happen. Oh, the fun of con games. You could just use the pre-generated characters. You were allowed to make your own character, but you were supposed to actually like have the player's handbook and know the rules for your character. And he kind of showed up, and he had a druid who was not one of the pre-gens. I mean, the pre-gens were... There were two different fighters, and then cleric, wizard, rogue. It's the same pre-gens that are in the, the beginner box set were the ones that they had for everybody. And, yeah, he showed up with the druid and was like, so, GM, do you have spell lists? Anyhow, there were some other things. But, right, that has nothing to do with the game. Let's. Nope. So, but yes, no, not, not the best. Okay, so we have again been going on long enough for that to be an entire episode, and I'd like to have these come out in, I'd say, smaller chunks, which I guess is true, smaller, but not necessarily small chunks. So, we are again going to end this, and I guess. 
much like Mark Rosewater talking about Unhinged, we will go on for more episodes than we originally intended. Pray. So that is going to be it for part two of our Gen Con review. Come back soon for part three of our Gen Con review. I guess there are going to be at least five Gen Con episodes uh, once you add in the L5R episode and the Doomtown episode that will follow part three. Because I'm, I, I swear there will not be a part four of this generic one. There will just not be. If only because I spent too much time on Saturday playing L5R, so I can't possibly talk in the general episode for as long as I talked in this episode. But until then, you can check us out at strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can visit us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. I always like to hear from our listeners, so you can email me. It's chris at strangeassembly.com. Until then, for Mike Cook and Jay Earl, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.